How many of you have ever been in a geography bee? Anybody? Anybody in here? No? Geography bee? Yeah, okay, all right. I'm not the only one. You know, it's like a spelling bee, except it's not spelling words. It's answering questions about geography, just in case you didn't know. Um, I think the last geography bee that I was in, maybe the only one, I'm, I can't remember exactly, was in eighth grade. And what knocked me out of the geography bee was I could not name the country that was also known as the Emerald Isle, which it's Ireland, in case you didn't know that. Some things you just never forget. Some things I, I don't forget. Typically, a lot of mistakes I make, I dwell on those for 23 years or so. Um, you know, geography is often learned alongside history. You hear about this event, and it says it happened in that country, and that country doesn't even exist anymore. And so then you look at an old map, and you compare it to a present-day map, and you say, okay, so these countries weren't all the same 500 years ago or 300 years ago or 100 years ago. Borders change. Nations come and go. The only real consistency is the nature of man and the nature of God. How has God consistently revealed himself in history, and how has man consistently responded? In Acts chapter 7, as we continue our journey through Luke's book, the book of Acts, and in Acts chapter 7, we have the longest recorded speech in Acts. Acts is full of speeches. But Stephen's speech in Acts 7 takes the cake. And when we read it, which we'll do in a little while, it seems as though he's just giving a Jewish history lesson to Jewish scholars. A geography lesson. Which on the surface seems superfluous, unneeded, unnecessary. But what he's really doing is giving a theological geography lesson. He retells Jewish history through the lens of geography, to make a couple theological arguments. Those arguments are, number one, God can be and should be worshipped everywhere. God can be and should be worshipped everywhere. And the second one, following God's law according to your own standards is not following God's law at all. It's hypocrisy. Following God's law according to your own standards is not following God's law at all. Let's pick the story up actually in chapter 6, in the second half of Acts chapter 6, starting in verse 8. Acts 6, verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now there may only be a handful of people in all of scripture who are described as winsomely and godly as Stephen. In verse 5, He is described as a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. In verse 8, he is full of grace and power, able to do great wonders and signs. 
He's part of the first group of deacons, but he's also capable of performing the wonders and signs that the apostles were doing. Not only was he performing miracles, but he was eloquent and wise. In verse 10, it says his opponents could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And in verse 15, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Faithful, gracious, spirit-filled, wise, respected, and feared. So why is it then that he gains so many enemies? What Luke is doing here is giving us a transition in his book. Previously in Acts, the crowds in Jerusalem were inclined to respond positively to the message of the gospel. They saw the miracles, and they heard the preaching, and they repented. They considered the truth of what the apostles were teaching and preaching, and multitudes responded in repentance and faith. Peter said, look, all these miracles are meant to grab your attention so that your heart would be open to the message. The message that Jesus Christ of Nazareth, a man himself, attested to you by his own signs and wonders. This Jesus is the promised Messiah. The one promised in the Old Testament who would come and set people free from their slavery to sin. God in the flesh. Who lived. Who dwelt among us. And died on the cross. To pay the debt that our sin earned. Jesus who became our substitute and died. Jesus, who rose from the dead and is still now alive, having ascended to the right hand of God the Father. Jesus, who offers forgiveness of sin and redemption and salvation through his work and in his name alone. And what is required of you, Peter says, is to believe, to repent from your old thoughts that you could earn favor with God or earn your place in heaven, and to trust that Jesus freely gives us the grace we need to be right with God and to live for God both now and forever. That, all that is what Stephen's opponents refused to believe. Even though he said many of the same things, graciously, winsomely, with miracles to back it up, people from the local synagogue said, no, we will not change. And even though we cannot win the argument, we won't stop until you shut up. So they instigated men to lie. They paid witnesses to warp his words into blasphemy. Isn't change one of the most difficult things in life? The status quo becomes our status. And we don't want to lose our status. It becomes our safe haven the regular and known path, the wide and broad road. We know what to expect. And it doesn't typically seem to matter whether we like the regular, usual, expected outcome or not. Some of us are content in our contentment, and some of us are content in our regret. All that we know is we don't need someone coming in and telling us what's wrong with us. Maybe we've convinced ourselves that we're right. Even when the facts of the matter prove us wrong, we shrug it off. We silence the other side. We hold fast to what we already know because it's brought us this far, and if it's brought us this far, then certainly it can take us the rest of the way. Throw caution to the wind. Or maybe we know we're wrong. We know what we've believed or how we've been living is wrong, but we just can't muster up the courage or the ability to change. We don't see the problem as big enough to warrant repentance. You see, that's all that repentance is. 
It's a change of heart, a change of mind, a change internally that then works its way out in our actions. The proof is in the pudding, as they say. Now, I'd rather have vanilla wafers and bananas and whipped cream in my pudding, but all that fluff ain't going to cut it spiritually. I mean, how many of you have witnessed this or experienced this? I mean, I'm, I deal with this. I'm currently dealing with this. I know the changes that I need to make, but I just can't seem to get over the hump. I keep falling back into the same moments of anger and frustration. When I ought to exhibit peace and patience, instead I find myself exasperated and defensive and combative. We all have real problems. I'm a poster child for some of those. So what we can't do is read this story, examine these pages of scripture, and balk at how ignorant and foolish and selfish these Jews were as if we've never come close to acting like them. One of the most concerning things we can do when we read encounters like this is to put ourselves in the shoes of the good guy and scoff at the bad guys. I mean, for me, reading the story, it's easy. My name is Stephen. His name is Stephen, except for his incorrect spelling, you know. I mean, we're practically twins. But, we, but can we just stop, right, for a minute and examine where in our lives we've fallen into the same traps that these synagogue Jews and Jewish leaders have slipped into. The heart behind this entire narrative that we're about to read is this very idea. Don't remain stiff-necked. Recognize your tendency of being hard-hearted. Let the Holy Spirit actually do his work in you instead of fighting against him. We are creatures of habit, of routine. So evaluate if your patterns of belief and living and habits and routines are keeping you from God in the first place or are keeping you from growing closer to him subsequently. What God through his word is calling us to, whether we are Christians or not, is repentance and faith. And this really is a work that only the Holy Spirit can do in us. So we pray that God would make us each sensitive to this truth. That he would grant us repentance, that he would give us faith, that he would instill in us wisdom and grace. So how did Stephen respond to these accusations? There are two accusations which he is being asked to address. They're in verse 13, what we read. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place, And the law. You are being accused, Stephen, of disrespecting the temple and the law. As we finally and actually get into his speech, remember these two things. Stephen is being accused of false belief and false speech and false action against the temple and the law. We started our time earlier together by saying that Stephen had two points that he was trying to make in his speech. You remember what they were? only a few minutes ago. In regard to the temple, God can be and should be worshipped everywhere. God can be and should be worshipped everywhere. And the second one, following God's law according to your own standards is not following God's law at all. It is hypocrisy. So with that, let's read Acts chapter 7, starting in verse 1. We'll read till verse 53. I might need some water. I'm just kidding. I'll be fine. But 
It's long. Grace, you thought your chapter was long. (laughs) And the high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after, they, after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers, And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. Verse 17. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want me to kill you? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of fire and a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. And I've heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? 
This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Raphon, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. The accusations leveled against Stephen are the same ones he turns back on their own heads. He says, you venerate the temple, but God does not need a temple. God has been worshipped all over the Middle East and beyond. Heaven is his throne. The earth is his footstool. No house can contain me. I made all these things. You think that you can box me in with them? God says. God was worshipped by Abraham and Joseph without a temple, without a tabernacle. God still spoke to them and directed their steps. He did not at that time require a special place. He actually did the bulk of his work with them outside of the promised land. God called Abraham when he was still in Mesopotamia, when he was still called Abram. God used Joseph when he was in Egypt. And whether or not you're a geography specialist out there today, let me make it clear, neither of those places is Israel. Moses, where was he born? Egypt. Moses, where did he encounter God at the burning bush? The wilderness and Mount Sinai. And it doesn't really matter whether we know the exact location of Mount Sinai or not. All that's important is to know it's not in Israel. It's not in Jerusalem. God can be and should be worshipped everywhere. What's providentially amazing, really, when we read this, Acts 6 and 7 and the beginning of chapter 8, 
What's amazing about this whole episode with Stephen is that it is his very speech and the response to it that drives the gospel to spread beyond Jerusalem, outside the purview of the temple. Stephen is stoned. Sorry, I kind of gave that away before we read it, but that's fine. It's, I know, just totally gave away the ending. Stephen, yeah. Sometimes I do that. You had your chance to read it before, though. So, Stephen is stoned before he can even see this expansion happen. But he knows that it can and should happen. The very argument that these Jewish leaders refuse to accept and how they respond is actually the very catalyst that proves it to be true by causing it to begin. The widespread persecution of Christians that begins with Stephen is what spreads the gospel. The blood of this martyr becomes the seed of the church outside Jerusalem. God can be and should be worshipped everywhere. You do not own the rights to him. You cannot control him. He is everywhere. Psalm 139, where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Isaiah 66, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Historically, God's people have lacked humility. They have not trembled at his word, but have rejected it. They have rejected his messengers and subsequently have rejected his revelation. When Stephen recounts Joseph and Moses, he recounts their rejection. Joseph's brothers rejected him because of his revelation of the truth. They were jealous. The Israelites rejected Moses. Who made you ruler and judge over us? That one guy said in Egypt to Moses. The clear answer was God. Despite all the signs and wonders, though, even in the midst of receiving God's word, they rejected Moses. They rejected God's messenger. They rejected God's message. They rejected God. So many wrongs have been justified in the moment under the auspice of serving God. And no doubt there is a place for righteous anger. Stephen himself, at the end of this speech, has a tone and quality which is righteously jealous for the truth of God and the defense of the gospel. But he calls them to repent, not die. So a couple of truths that I think we ought to consider here. Repenting yourself is the right thing to do. Calling others to repent is the right thing to do. And let's make sure that we don't get those out of order or that we neglect personal repentance completely. So how can we keep an eye toward repentance individually and in our culture? Here where we live, Abingdon, this area, there are a couple pitfalls that we can be tempted into. 
the first one, we can just see outside the window in the yard over there. I'll call it love, trump, hate others. Or the second one is love, self, don't change. We can join the far-right conservatives or the far-left liberals, for that matter, and demand our way. We can paint caricatures of the other side and villainize them and puff ourselves up, all the while refusing to consider whether the way in which we engage the other side is proof in fact that we might be the ones who are wrong. Maybe I should put it, love politics, hate others. We have turned political positions into theological strongholds. And it would be most advantageous for us as those who proclaim the gospel to draw distinctions here. Just because you vote Republican, or what if you're old enough, or are engrossed in far-right ideology does not make you a Christian or a better Christian. You are not naturally obeying God by being a Republican. The only way that any of us can obey God is by repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, being humble, contrite in spirit, trembling at his word as it has been revealed to us in Jesus Christ, believing and submitting to the gospel. And it's just as true for Democrats in the far-left ideology, twisting God's word to legitimize and normalize our culture's sexual ethics is wrong. Misunderstanding God And God's love to mean that he accepts you living your life however you please, you be you, is just as false. The Jewish leaders in our story are being accused of turning the law into what they want it to be, conforming it into their lifestyle, refusing to change. And that's what our culture is saying loud and clear to us. Don't change. Live how you want. Love self. Don't change. And Christ steps in in the middle of all that, God's word cuts through the middle of that, and he says, follow me. You'll catch some bumps and bruises along the way, but this is the path to life. This is the way to experience true joy, lasting peace, eternal love, the narrow way. If we are going to call individuals in our culture to repentance and faith, then we must first be the ones to live repentant and faithful lives. It is hypocrisy to call others and expect others to follow Jesus when you yourself are not. Following Jesus means dying to yourself. Anyone who wants to gain his life must lose it. It is no coincidence that this is our New Year's Day sermon. Like you can make whatever healthy resolutions you want to make this year, and I would encourage you to do that. Eat better and exercise and save more money and all that stuff or something like it, or something a little bit more off the wall. I don't know. But the one resolution that all of us ought to constantly have as Christians is to stop looking back. Stop looking back at a past decision we made for Christ. Stop looking back at the spiritual successes and spiritual failures in our life. Stop looking back and instead fix our eyes on Jesus. There are too many people around us in Abingdon, Virginia, who presume upon God's graces because of some decision they made as a child or some act of spirituality in the past. Or maybe they just presume upon his grace because they're good enough. I think we're all inclined toward that at some point or another in each of our lives. 
But there is a better way, the way of faith, the way that depends on Christ at all times and in all circumstances. So let's latch on to that truth and invite others into that truth, praying all the while that God's Spirit would open their eyes to see and ears to hear his truth. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this example in scripture of a man who was led by your spirit to speak the truth even though he knew there was a really good chance it was going to cost him his life, and it did. Lord, help us to live such radical lives as this faithful example that we've read about today. Would your spirit work in our lives so that we would be known as people who are gracious, people who are winsome, people who are God-fearing, people who are filled with the Spirit, people who boldly speak the truth in love. God, that's who we want to be. And as we begin this new year, Would you make it that much more true in each of our lives and in our lives together? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.